Fixoplasm Podcast, episode 73, The Squares of the City by John Brunner. John Brunner wrote The Squares of the City in 1965, and uh, compared to the only other Brunner I've read, which is Stand on Zanzibar, this is shorter and more straightforward. And it has this feel of a J.G. Ballard novel, you know, with a sort of alien community on the verge of collapse. Although, we should note that in 1965, Ballard wasn't really into his full stride. Um, High Rise was published in 1975. Now, this book is described as both science fiction and a fantasy thriller. Um, and both are technically correct, but it's quite subtle. It's easy to overlook any kind of fantastic element in it. It's, it's sort of fantasy in the same way that the film Streets of Fire is a fantasy. Um, it's, a, it's a fictional location, uh, but the situations and the characters feel contemporary. It is a, an aspirational city of the future. It's an artificial situation that's been created, but it still feels like it could be real. Uh, and as for science fiction, there are some nods to the science of propaganda, city management, population control, um, all of which makes it slightly prisoner-esque. The most fantastic element I can think of is the notion of a this city-wide game of chess, and this is the central plank of the whole plot. Um, now, one reviewer, Algis Budris, who's quoted in Wikipedia, called it more artifice than fiction. The city was created by Brunner for the sole purpose of setting a human chess game on it. Uh, as a human chess game, it's comprised of two sides, obviously. There's, there's the citizens and the nationalists. Brunner has even written a helpful appendix setting out who the characters occupy the different roles on the chessboard. And these characters are steadily wiped off the board during the course of the narrative through various political moves, court cases, and, towards the end, acts of violence. And speaking of the prisoner... Um, the episode Checkmate also features a human chessboard. Uh, and this made me think, because that episode is contemporary with this book, so it's 1966 or 67 it was aired, I think, versus this is 1965. And I wondered if this book was actually an influence on that script. Um, apparently not according to Andrew Pixley's Guide of the Series, which was... Um, bundled with my copy of I think it was the 25th anniversary edition of The Prisoner where they where they cleaned it up a bit um, so apparently the scriptwriter Gerald Kelsey was inspired by a holiday in Germany in 1959 where he visited a medieval castle with a human sized chessboard and he thought that human chess was one of the craziest ideas he could think of but that concept is totally overshadowed by Brunner's approach Okay, it's not overtly a chess game, but chess is a constant motif. And this is supposed to mirror this sort of um, an, an actual chess game from the late 19th century, I believe. So I think Brunner got there first in terms of, you know, human chess games. It's not the Kafkaesque surveillance society of the prisoner. But it does feel equally claustrophobic, and it features a similarly strong-willed and, quite frankly, not really likeable protagonist. So, as always, I'm going to do a bit of a synopsis, then I'm going to talk about um, 
individual elements and role-playing options for them. And then there'll be a third bit where I'll talk about some other things to read. Here we go. The setting is Ciudad de Vardos in the fictional South American country of Aguazol, which I believe is not to be confused with the Colombian province of Aguazol. Now, it is a little confusing because there's the original spelling of Aguazol, this fictional uh, country, is spelt with an O, and Aguazol uh, is spelt with a U after the Z. Um, but then they use Aguazol later in the printing, so I, I don't know if that was Brunner making a mistake or whether it was his copy editors making a mistake. Who knows? Uh, but this is supposedly wholly fictional. And it has, uh, this this city has some futuristic elements to it, like uh, a monorail. But it's also attracted people from outlying villages who settled in its many slums. And these slums are a point of contention for the two political factions. On one side, there's the citizens, and the other side, the nationalists. And these two factions are fighting a bitter war in the newspapers and the courts, and later in the streets. And into this mix, we have our protagonist and foreign observer, Boyd Hacklett, which I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, and, and Hacklett negotiates the political landscape, making various acquaintances on both sides and trying to make sense of the political chess game being played out in front of him. So these are the characters we have uh, alongside Boyd Hacklett, who is a traffic analyst and has been uh, is employed there by uh the uh, administration to improve their traffic flow problem uh, we have on one side the citizens which uh, the very top includes Juan Sebastian Vados who's the president of uh, the country for the last 20 years and uh, the um, and the city of Vados has been uh, you know it's his creation uh, and alongside Vados there's uh, Dr Alejandro Mayer um, who's an author of some of Hacklett's favourite books on city planning. So he is uh, the brains behind this um, this futuristic city vision. As a few other characters note, um, Judge Romero is this corrupt judge presiding over several cases of libel and other prosecutions that are being used by political tools on both sides. Um, and then uh, Donald Angers is Hacklett's contact at the traffic office. And he's quite interesting because he's a naturalised citizen, so he counts himself amongst the citizens. He has actual citizen benefit. But he's actually uh, he's actually a foreigner. He's, he's um, originally British. And on the other side, the nationalists, um, the most prominent character is probably uh, Maria Posador, who is uh, one of the first characters that Hacklett meets. And she is this sort of, um, she, she originally appears to like this femme fatale kind of character. I mean, this is a, has a very noir feel for it. And she slots right into that role as the strong female opposition uh, to Boyd Hacklett. And she's a bit of a mystery throughout her motivations. Uh, a lot of her, her exchanges, she lets slip her political leanings and her interest in the various groups. Uh, and her support from them, but she never fully plays her hand. A couple of other characters, uh, there's Cristoforo and uh, Philippe Mendoza, and they own the Tiempo, which is the nationalist newspaper. 
So um, there are two newspapers. The Libertad is the political mouthpiece of the establishment, and then the Tiempo opposes that. The last one I want to mention is uh, Jose Dalbon. I think it's Jose, not Jose, because it's Spanish, not not Portuguese. Um, Jose Dalbon is supposedly this local businessman, uh, implied that he's a gangster uh, and a smuggler, and he has business interests. Um, what he's actually selling is um, what he's actually smuggling is contraceptives, which aren't illegal, but they're frowned on because this is a Catholic country. And a few other characters kicking around, and these the ones I've mentioned are the um, are the the big pieces, uh, the the kings and queens, the bishops and knights. Um, I haven't mentioned the pawns. There's a couple of notable ones. There's uh, characters like uh, Fats Brown is a is a pawn on the side of the nationalists, and he just basically gets caught in a bad place. But he's a He's an American lawyer who befriends um, Boyd Hacklett and ends up getting framed for an awful crime and um, and doesn't come to a particularly good end, quite frankly. Uh, but he's a, he's otherwise a minor character, and he's a really interesting character as well. Uh, he gives a very um, street-level human perspective on Vardas as, a, uh, as, as this binary state of, you know, the beautiful shining city and then the people who live under the underpass so the opening um starts off with boyd hacklett traffic flow specialist commissioned by president vardos to address traffic management in the capital city and in the opening we learn that uh, ciudad de vardos is an ultra modern construction built up from nothing 10 years ago and it represents the aspirations of the country uh, or at least the aspirations of its ruling elites and the problems that Hacklett witnesses firsthand are clashes between classes as the shiny new city is infested with slums that divide the population into two ideologies. Those are the citizens of Vardos who want to see the slums demolished and the nationalists who feel that the citizens are betraying national identity. Over the course of the novel, Hacklett is a fairly passive observer, alternating between positions of outrage at the political moves being played and then disclaiming all responsibility, saying, oh, I'm just an employee. I'm just here to do my job and no more. Uh, I said he's not particularly likable. Um, so he's here as a witness to the corruption of the state through its courthouses and its politically biased newspapers, uh, its methods to control the population through subliminal messaging via the television, uh, something which actually people acknowledge is going on and say, oh, yeah, it's fine, it's a good thing. Um, and also he notices the underhanded methods to remove pieces from the board, including murders framed as suicide, arson, legal manipulation, all these things. So then the tensions ramp up on both sides with abuse of the opposition in the streets and in the papers, buckets of paint thrown over statues of the president, brawls and knife fights, and finally full-on rioting. And at some point, the television station is blown up, which many citizens resent because they're unable to follow the national chess tournament. Chess is a big deal in this country. And of course, that has another effect, though. It silences the government, or at least some of the government's ability to communicate to its citizens. And so it puts a halt to this subliminal messaging. When the TV station goes up, it takes Alejandro Mayer with it. Um, so Alejandro Mayer is this, this character who's 
uh, he has the vision. You know, um, Vardos is the one who wants the city to thrive, but um, Maya is the one who has the academic vision. And um, Hacklet's a fan of Maya's first book, which is the administration of the 20th century state, which apparently inspired his entire career. But when he meets Maya, the, the, the professor tells him that his first book is flawed and he no longer agrees with his own ideas, which is an interesting position for uh, anyone meeting their hero to come into. So Brunner positions Maya as queen to Vardas as king, supposedly the most powerful piece on that side presumably because it's Maya's ideas that are fundamental to the vision of Ciudad de Vados. So when Maya does die, it's implicit that the experiment has failed and things go downhill pretty quickly because the queen has been taken off the board. And in the inevitable finale, uh, we see Hackler confront the two kings and learn the purpose of the game. Uh, but the civil war the game was intended to avert now seems inevitable. So what these people have done is the game is completely artificial and they constructed it so that they have these pieces moving around to determine who's winning and who's losing to avoid things spilling out into outright warfare. As a, there's a Star Trek episode that's a lot like that with um, two sides of an advanced society playing uh, effectively a computer simulated uh, nuclear war and then vaporizing their citizens as they're taken off the board and that's pretty much the same idea about what we have here both warring for hearts and minds now one thing that Brenner does in this novel that he also doesn't stand on Zanzibar is to have his protagonist go off on one at the end of the novel now if Brunner had written his protagonist solving the mystery and then admonishing everyone and then just fleeing the collapsing state, that would have been a pretty poor ending. But instead, it ends on a cliffhanger where there's a hint that Hacklet, who's you know been observing everything with a certain detachment, might actually try to do something to fix the situation. And we don't find out what that is. The last thing he does is he instructs his pilot to land back in the city that's now in the grips of a civil war. And he then immediately calls uh, Maria Posador and says, I think I know what we need to do. bit like the Italian job, although a lot grimmer. I like the ambiguity of that ending. And it feels right to not explore this further because the game is done. The king, both kings have been captured by Hacklet, the knight on one side, as it were. I want to move on now to talk about the themes, and the urban chess game is the standout feature of this novel. But before we cover that, I also want to talk about how the situation started. So, Ciudad de Vados is an artificial city. It didn't exist ten years ago. It's also President Vados' child, in inverted commas. It's his legacy. He has this vision of a modern utopian state which will bring his country into the modern and future ages. Now, the problem is that he's created an artificial clique or culture of citizens that is out of step with the rest of the country. And this is the whole basis for the political divisions. It's a complete failure to integrate. And it's no wonder that the project from outside looks like it only serves the interests of elites. 
And this view from the outside is really important when considering this chess metaphor. Well, not a metaphor in this case. It is actually literally a game of chess. Um, but back in the Viraconium episode, and maybe before, um, I mentioned this tool I developed called The City Accelerated, and I'll link it in the show notes again. And this is a way of planning out a city for RPG purposes, which would be topologically with a focus on the areas that are actually interesting. And the citizens occupy three tiers, pawns and knights at the bottom, bishops and rooks in the middle, and king and queen at the top. And I wasn't seriously thinking about chess at the time, just the useful pairings. So with this setup, we have one side of the chessboard, and the idea was to play out internal conflicts, i.e. white versus white, bishops against rooks. Uh, so the bishops and the rooks um, control districts. And you want to have a district-level drama where the establishment doesn't really change. You just have the, bish- just have the bishops being powerful crime lords uh, and the rooks being enforcers of the establishment and then the knights are interlopers and free agents and they would be the the player characters but you could take that structure and invent a complete other city of black pieces and in this book we have two factions who represent competing ideologies and these competing ideologies are represented by the kings on each side And then the absolute authority, the implementation, lies with the queens. So whether you have a single city divided as in this book, or two cities close to each other like the city and the city, or a shadow city like Ombria, it should still work. The rival kings set out their ideology, and the queens the how to achieve it. And in the course of the play, you can then move pieces around and take them off the board as you see fit. Now, of course, the middle-tier characters are partly there to define territory, and in the original tool they were seemed to be at odds. The idea was to use that structure to focus on the internal struggles of a single district. I'm thinking of how to reconfigure the tool for this chess structure, and what will probably have to happen is a rehash um, around this middle-tier Breaking it down according to the Brunner, the pawns are of low consequence and the knights like Hacklet and Maria Posada are independent agents. And bishops seem to be policy makers. Rooks hold actual physical resources like the police, military, the television station and so on. Another thing about this tool, when I wrote the first draft, I also added a view of the city from a traveller walking towards it from a distance right into its centre. And this is probably worth thinking of when considering the opposing forces. What does the city look like to its opponents? The nationalists see this artificial confection of steel and glass that serves the elites, and the citizens see the slums as the disrupting element in their myths. So that's the structure. What do you actually do in play? I would take cues from Powered by the Apocalypse, and in particular something like Urban Shadows and Apocalypse World, and create fronts and reactions that are triggered under some circumstances. So, for example, Hacklet pisses off a character called Fernando Segueros. The latter responds by moving slum dwellers to squat in somebody's rich housing. Or a court case is overturned by a corrupt judge. So an altercation happens on the steps of the courthouse, and this leads to a death, followed by the death in prison 
of the agitators, followed by rioters burning down the state television broadcast building, shutting down the state propaganda machine, which leads to the government to drive the nationalist papers underground. And I think most referees would do this in the course of the game, regardless of whatever system. But I'm picking on PBTA because it's very clear on the need for conviction in the MC hard moves, and also in this concept of moves snowballing. So one final thought. In the original design, I intended to allow for pieces to change roles, so pawns could become bishops, and uh, or knights, and then and the king could fall to the position of a knight or whatever. I still like that idea because you have the opportunity to change regimes and the tone of the game. I'm not sure how it would work with two conflicting states, however, because the chess metaphor relies on well-defined political roles. But we don't know what happens in the Antarctic. And it's implied that he actually wants to help at the end, although it's a cliffhanger. Does he change roles? Does he switch sides? Could he, for example, replace Alejandro Mayer as the White Queen? He has that vision and that ideology. So in summary, um, I'm going to be reconfiguring the city tool to work in a slightly different way. But the first draft is freely available and uh, I'll link it in the show notes. Have a read if you're interested in this kind of thing. Tell me what you think. Alright, so additional reading. This novel is obliquely about city planning, which is the academic speciality of Alejandro Mayer, who influenced Hacklett so strongly. Um, and on that subject, if you want to look into city design, there's a couple of recommendations I have. Um, Spyro Kostov's The City Shaped from 1991 is subtitled Urban Patterns and Meanings Through History. This starts with cities as organisms planned and unplanned and then it discusses the grid the most common planned pattern as after that there's a chapter on the city as a diagram where city plans have a specific geometry and the fourth chapter which is probably my favorite is called the grand manor and that's all about city planning as an artistic exercise and the last chapter is about skylines then there's a follow-up book called The City Assembled, which is subtitled The Elements of Urban Design Through History. And this catalogues the individual elements like uh, public places, rich quarters, temple areas, streets, the edge of the city. It's maybe a bit easier to dip in and out of. But together, these are pretty substantial tomes. But they do have loads of interior art and photos, and if you've got a patience for big role-playing tomes, then this probably isn't so bad. And the other book I want to mention, which is a bit lighter, is called City, a guidebook for the urban age. It's written by P.D. Smith. And it's organised more along the lines of what people do with cities, from arrival to walking about, street languages, uh, entertainment, commerce, travel in and out of the city, and that sort of thing. And I really think it complements the cost of books really nicely because uh, it's got a different perspective. So I'm glad I own both. I would say if you're going to pick one, um, I would go for this one first. It's kind of a, an easier read to get into it, but they're all terrific. And that's about it for this episode. So I hope you found it interesting. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please uh, like, share and subscribe. Also, if you want to find out what I'm writing, I do occasionally write the odd tiny letter and you can subscribe to those via the link on the website. Music for this podcast is by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at www.chriszabriskie.com. Thanks for listening. Till next time.